Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast titled Nursing Perspectives on Applying a Novel T-Cell Redirecting Antibody Therapy in Multi-Refractory Multiple Myeloma Patients. I am Elizabeth Aronson. I'm a nurse practitioner at the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and I'll be moderating this discussion. Together with me are two very seasoned nurse practitioner colleagues. I'm thrilled to have them whose clinical focus is hematologic oncology and myeloma care specifically. And I'll let them introduce themselves. Thank you so much. My name is Beth Feynman. I am a nurse practitioner in the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology at the Cleveland Clinic Tostig Cancer Institute in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you for having me. I'm Sandy Curtin. I am Director of Advanced Practice and Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine, nurse practitioner at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. Glad to be here. Thank you. Welcome to both of you, and thank you so much for participating in today's podcast. We'd like to start by focusing on your insights in this novel class of agents that have been looked at in clinical trials for patients with relapsed and refractory multiple myeloma. The bispecific T-cell engagers, which are a class of antibodies, an innovative way for cancer immunotherapy. Today, we're going to talk about talketamab, that's spelled with a Q, which is an off-the-shelf bispecific T-cell engager that has shown a lot of promise in the management of patients with advanced myeloma. Could you talk about the principal mechanism of action, the protein target, and how this drug functions to kill myeloma cells? Thank you, Liz. Talketamab is a bispecific humanized monoclonal antibody against the human CD3 which is a T-cell surface antigen and human G-protein-coupled receptor family G-group 5-member D. Say that five times fast. We call that GPR-C5D. That's a tumor-associated antigen, or TAA, with potential anti-cancer activity. So GPR-C5D is an orphan receptor that's not expressed on normal cells, but when given to patients, telkinumab binds to both CD3 and T-cells and GPRC5D expressed on tumor cells to cross-link and redirect T-cells to kill myeloma cells. That's such a great explanation, Beth, and I had to practice how to say that several times, so great job. Data on talketamab were reported in June this year, both at ASCO and EHA meetings from Monumental One. This is a recently completed open-label multi-center clinical trial evaluating the safety and efficacy of this antibody in adult patients with relapsed or refractory MM. Could you summarize the key clinical outcome data, first on efficacy, from Monumental One, and also comment on their potential significance considering this evolving treatment landscape in relapsed or refractory myeloma? Sure. So this is very exciting data particularly given this novel mechanism of action, which Beth just so aptly described, including the longer name of our GPRC5D. <laughs> and so I think, first of all, this was a dose finding, dose escalating trial. There were two arms. The final dosing there was either 405 or 800 mics per kilogram. And the lower dose was given weekly every 21 days. The higher dose was given every two weeks at a 28-day cycle. And with both of those dosing regimens, the outcomes were incredibly promising. First of all, talking about the population, 94% of these patients were triple refractory. So that's important. All of them had had at least an autologous 
stem cell transplant in their treatment history. There were a handful, three patients that had actually had an allogeneic stem cell transplant. 59% of those patients had had prior BCMA therapy. So this is a very heavily pretreated group. And despite all of that, overall response rates were 70, 71% in those two groups. Durability of response will be evolving as the uh, data mature and as we move into the next phase of clinical trials. But among those patients, there was a greater than 50% VGPR rate. So not only did we have sensitivity in this heavily pretreated group of patients, but a depth of response that we would usually not expect to see in such a heavily treated population. Very exciting data. I agree. And I just want to interject real quick. I think the neat thing about this too is that there was a step-up dosing of telketamab and there were two dose levels and both of them showed comparable efficacy and safety in these heavily pretreated patients. Both, thank you for your insights. It's exciting data. Among other new therapies that have been introduced for advanced myeloma, so same population, cell-based immunotherapies, the CAR T-cell products, are currently the most recognized and have provided proof of principle for efficacy, but they're also associated with serious toxicities. And there is an overlap here with these toxicities because we're harnessing the immune system in the same way with the T-cell engagers. Can you comment on toxicities like cytokine release syndrome or CRS and immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome or ICANS? and how the incidence, severity, and the overall management might differ between bispecific T-cell engagers and CAR T-cell therapy. So many of those who could be listening to this podcast have some experience with CAR T-cell therapies against BCMA or the ones that are currently approved by the FDA. And you see a little bit more CRS at variable or cytokine release syndrome at variable time points. You know, one is more quickly recognized in others, and a little bit more neurotoxicity. In the bispecifics like telketamab, in the clinical studies in the both different dose levels, the most common side effects were CRS, but again, they were very, very manageable. We also did see skin-related adverse events, which I want to ask Liz about later, because she has a lot of experience in that as well. But the time to onset with the CRS was about two days in both of the groups. And so patients can be in the infusion center area and quickly recognize it. And we can manage these side effects such as CRS, which are things that I think we're going to be talking about a little bit later too. Thanks, Beth. So also related to CAR T-cell therapies, because they're manufactured from the patient's own T-cells, their administration requires specialized production centers, distribution networks, and a high comfort level and expertise of the clinic and hospital staff and extreme vigilance for those serious side effects. In your view, what way did those features of the cell-based therapies, specifically CAR-T, hinder their more extensive adoption? I think one of the biggest challenges we have in our center, there is a shortage of the viral vector to deliver these CAR-T cell therapies in the approved therapies right now. And then other barriers to more wide adoption are the stringent quality control by the FDA. So some of these part T cell therapies are coming back where they harvest the patient's stem cells or the T cells, ship them off, manufacture with the vector, it comes back to the patient four to eight weeks. 
and they're out of specification. The telketamab or some of these other novel agents are off the shelf and we can just readily give them. So the amount of time to manufacture the cars is a big barrier in terms of these heavily pretreated patients, right? Sandy, you just talked about these heavily pretreated patients who failed all these therapies. Can patients wait for CAR T cells to be manufactured in your opinion in some cases? No. And so I think this is where we have ticking time bombs, at least as we're studying this today. And that may change over time. It is perhaps this moves up further in lines of therapy. But at this point, you have these people with very refractory disease, which tends to be aggressive and we lose our window very quickly and many times. So you are planning ahead and then a week or two week delay can certainly be a deal breaker for these patients, either in their fitness and other organ function, but also in terms of their disease, just flowing through whatever that last therapy is that was barely holding them. What you're both telling me is that CAR-T has been a great advance, which we know, but that the availability and the applicability definitely have some barriers there. And how does an off-the-shelf bispecific differ in nature from the CAR-T therapies for patients with relapsed and refractory MM? Well, it's just what it sounds like. It's off the shelf. And so as long as we have drug availability or product availability, or a drug per se, but product availability, we can actually plan and strategically place that therapy for that individual patient in such a way that it maximizes their eligibility for this therapy. So we're in much better control of that trajectory, which is really essential for these patients who have very variable treatment histories and what I like to call the tempo of their disease. That's a beautiful way to put it and also rings true. In my experience, it can be hard to find a bridging regimen mm -hmm. for some patients, yes. depending on how much they've been exposed to and what they're going to respond to to get them to CAR-T. So this is definitely an important point. Let's talk a little bit more about adverse effects other than CRS and the CNS events. What are those and what are the key awareness factors for treating clinicians? So I will just say that although this target, our GPRC5D, is primarily expressed on multiple myeloma cells, there is some expression in hair follicles and keratinized tissue in particular, and some rare expression in the medulla. But we do see some of these toxicities that are related to skin and nail changes, uh, including nail loss. And that onset is somewhere around three, three and a half months, generally resolved for all, they're in the trial, but one patient resolved at the time of data analysis and something that can be managed. This is something that is very unique to talcatamab. And while GPRC not being expressed on vital organs allows us to be able to use it, it does seem that there is expression in those hard keratinized tissues and it creates these kind of unique side effects that fall into two categories, the dermatologic adverse events, and then we called them oral adverse events. And the oral was pretty prevalent at the two dose levels that were identified, and that resulted in dry mouth and taste changes. And the dermatologic were primarily dryness, peeling, less common injection site reactions, and then the nail changes that you mentioned. The oral adverse events also happened pretty early and were most severe in the first cycle. 
I really would counsel patients in my practice when they were going to initiate therapy to try to push through because they can be, you know, when you really have a loss of taste, that can be discouraging and affect quality of life. But for most patients, they found that those improved over time. And I didn't have anybody who said, I think we had one patient at our center out of hundreds who stopped therapy for that reason, but I didn't have any other patients who would say, I wouldn't have done talketamab because they were just getting such a benefit. And there is currently a lot of investigation looking at how we can mitigate or prevent those effects. So that's exciting. Right. And just to add to that, you know, the step up dosing, I think has been really valuable in helping to mitigate the severe cytokine release syndrome. And and what about infections too, Liz? So I, I mean, I think with a lot of the bispecifics and how they work with the immune system, I think infections can be kind of common. What was it? About 47% were grade three, and then there were some grade four infections. So what are some of the antibiotics that you might see in these patients to prevent infections? Yeah. Infection is such an issue with myeloma patients in general. And I will say that in my experience, because we also used a lot of BCMA-directed therapies, the incidence and severity was a little bit less with talkinumab overall. And I don't have the exact numbers, but that was what we experienced in practice. And I think part of that comes from the cytopenias were not as persistent, the prolonged neutropenias and things like that. But we didn't prophylact people other than with viral prophylaxis unless they were neutropenic. And a most common infection was upper respiratory infections, pneumonia. Okay, so let's move on a little bit and talk about, from a nursing perspective, if you can talk about the route of administration, the dose, which I think Sandy mentioned already, pre-medications, if there's any immediate post-dose monitoring. Right. I think that this is an important question because many times we look at these newer drugs, we have to think about any other kind of antibodies that we give. So we tend to give corticosteroids, acetaminophen, and then we're really watching the patients closely for any signs of the cytokine release syndrome, such as fever, et cetera. Sometimes they spike a fever, but they might have immunosuppression. So you want to make sure you're ruling out an infection when they have that spike of fever, et cetera. Sandy or Liz, do you have any other thoughts on the immediate post-monitoring other than making sure it's working with checking the myeloma labs later on? No, I think we just need to remind our colleagues that we know how to do this. Most people have experience with these classes of adverse events. They certainly know how to give sub-Q injections and try to avoid those injection site reactions. So I think if we just remind people that CRS and ICANS are things that we also know in most cases and need to be vigilant about monitoring for that. I think that's a really great statement is that we know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we're introducing these novel classes, these novel agents, it can be intimidating for an infusion nurse or a bedside nurse who is really busy and we know has a lot of constraints and demands. But I think that especially with CAR-T therapy, with other therapies, we've done this and we can manage these patients. And I think that's a great way to frame it. Another question considering, and this is the treatment landscape, myeloma is just explosive, but There's also the reality that these patients get so many lines of therapy. What are your thoughts on the importance of balancing benefit versus toxicity? 
risks a given drug as patients go through line after line? So I think that these are heavily pretreated patients. They're highly experienced. They're very engaged. They're very knowledgeable. But with that said, I think we need to make sure they understand this is a different mechanism of action. And although we are talking about this data, it's still early data. And as with any drug, as it's evolving and its discovery, we need to be really vigilant in monitoring and reporting any unexpected adverse events. And we really do count on the patient and their caregivers for that vigilance and reporting. From a practical perspective, we touched on it a bit, but could you help us become more familiar with the logistics that need to be taken into consideration when administering this type of bispecific antibody therapy? There are so many prior therapies these patients have been exposed to. Now we're getting a therapy where they could have this fever in the middle of the night or have a severe side effect with the first or second dose particularly. And so having a caregiver to support them is important. I also link them in with social work. Maybe they need help with transportation back and forth or financial assistance because they've been through this for a long, long time. So it's not only the sub-Q dosing and we have a step-up dosing to mitigate side effects. We look for side effects. We look for infection. We look for the oral dermatologic toxicity, but it's also supporting the patient and the caregiver in making sure they have a support to get them through this to the next step. Those are great points. It seems like from everything we've said, talcatamab could really be a desirable treatment option, considering its efficacy, tolerability, and the feasibility. And it may be more accessible than some other immunotherapies. In practical terms, how do nurses help integrate novel therapies in a given practice setting? So how do we communicate with other members of the healthcare team to ensure that the patient's compliance and the overall therapeutic impact are maximized? So that's a big question. And given the crazy good science that we all are enjoying today and needing to learn about so many different treatment options simultaneously across disease states, I think it can be challenging, but listening to this podcast is one way. So we're helping them right there. I think taking advantage of other learning opportunities. I know that I subscribe to the FDA updates and you get a ping the minute something new is coming to market and it will give you the initial information about that. So there are a number of strategies that we can use. I think educating each other So if there are experts in our practices, making sure that we do that kind of education with our nurses and the infusion suite and other healthcare professionals. And I think the other thing that I have learned over time is having a consistent message and understanding our role in that vigilance as there are new therapies arriving and being able to communicate those effectively in the medical record, which is harder than it looks, knowing where do I put my information, where do you put your information, but making sure that we use common terminology, that we are documenting that in our notes and making sure that we share that across the team is gonna really help us do a better job in safely administering Talquetumab and any other drug. What role do you think advanced practice nurses and nurse practitioners, but also nurse and patient navigators play in increasing that patient access and educating them about helpful resources, maybe from the manufacturer, patient support groups. How do we do that? 
I think all of those different ways we've been discussing throughout, you know, good communication within the group, like Sandy said, type it in the note, know where you're documenting. And then I added in, make sure that you're communicating by fax or email or by snail mail in some cases or printing things out for the patient. But the advanced practitioner can also have early access referrals. You know, these drugs, just because they were given to people who had many prior lines of therapy, have them go to a large hospital center early on so they can get on a list for maybe a CAR-T or another BCMA-directed therapy, or they might be a candidate for telketamab. So just being an advocate and linking them in with support groups and finding those resources, I think, is a recipe for success. I think what I heard Sandy say a little bit earlier is key, which is, especially with these unique toxicities, is who do you call? So I think that has to be very clear in the medical record and in the institution, who's the point person who knows about what to do here. And that information has to be really accessible. And then Beth, I think what you're saying is talk to each other, which is so important. Let's call our colleagues in the community and keep open lines of communication. Along the similar kind of vein, but a little bit different, this is related specifically to caregivers. And Beth, you alluded to this earlier, how important it is for the patient to have a caregiver. But how do oncology nurses support and educate that caregiver around how to organize care, how the drug works, and get them ready to monitor for those specific symptoms and support the patient through this process? So I'm very passionate about this. This is a team sport. And as we know, you are not eligible for CAR-T or auto transplants or any of these things unless you have a caregiver. And at this point in the patient's journey, those caregivers are exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to think about preparing our caregivers in a more formal way and supporting them, helping them build a caregiver team so they have respite and really giving them clear tools and guidance. They're an extension of our team. Essentially, when they leave our building, those caregivers are on duty. And we want them to know who to call, when to call, how to get where you need to go, uh, what do you have at home? So you have an arsenal to implement strategies to mitigate toxicity readily. So there's a lot of work we need to do to better build a structure for caregiver support, I think. This question is about expectations. So we know, we talked about this population, they're super savvy, very well-informed. How do you best manage expectations for patients who have relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma after treatment with a T-cell directed by a specific antibody? And how do you address their overall goals of care while in therapy? So I think these patients have been in many different clinical trials at this point often or on many different therapies. And Sandy had mentioned the caregivers are tired, the patients are often tired. Now, some people are ready and gung-ho to get on that next therapy because the good thing is that in these heavily pretreated patients, about 70% did respond and many of them had a very good partial response rate or better. So while we are a little bit conservative about our hope that this will work, we can say that about 70% of patients who had lots of prior therapies still responded, but look for these things and we'll give them our information sheet, give them a little ID card with the list of, you know, I'm on a clinical trial, this is my primary care provider, and then have them practice an elevator speech if they get into trouble. So by doing those 
few things you can equip your patient for if they run into trouble, what to expect, who to call, and also stay hopeful that patients responded to this medication despite many prior therapies. Great. This question is also related because it's talking about outcomes. How do you convey to patients the importance of achieving meaningful outcomes in this difficult to treat disease, especially when they're part of that relapsed refractory population? And how do you communicate the value of targeted therapies like talcatamab? Most of these patients are very savvy and we've explained to them how different therapies work. And so I would say that focusing on the novel mechanism of action, something that we've not ever had in myeloma is really important. And then limiting irreversible toxicities. And I think that's the really other great thing about talcatamab is that we aren't talking about some of the things that we've focused on for so long in multiple myeloma, which has been neuropathy and other different toxicities. So this is something I think that also would be important to explain to those patients. They're going to watch their protein levels and graphs. And so I share data with my patients. I think that's important to let them know what we do know at this point and how important it is to tell us so we can all learn more as we take the drugs forward in its development. So we're coming to the end of our discussion and from everything that we've talked about around T-cell engaging bispecific antibodies, specifically talcatamab, in your opinion, what is the most important take-home message for our audience? I just yes. wanted to say thank you again for letting me join in on this. I'm just so excited about talcatamab. It's the first in class. It's a T-cell redirecting bispecific antibody. It's so complicated and sophisticated in its mechanism of action that even people that were heavily pretreated, 70% of them did respond. And it's harnessing your own immune system to fight the cancer. We know that the two doses of drugs are very effective. And so future studies will show us what the best dose is. And we know these side effects are manageable with step-up dosing and pre-medication and education. And so just communicating all these things with the nurses and the patients and the caregivers and working as a team, if you're a nurse or an advanced practice provider, I think is a recipe for success. Sandy, what do you think? I think it provides hope in a group to your point, Liz, that may have thought there's nothing left for me. And so that's very exciting that a unique mechanism of action. I think some of the evolving data that there is synergy in the co-administration of our anti-CD38 antibody. That's exciting to learn as we go about maybe combinations in the future. So this is all really great information, but requires some vigilance and responsibility on our part in administering it, applying those safety measures, educating the caregivers, and then really talking and reporting anything that might be a unique adverse event as we go forward, but really exciting to have this drug coming forward. I couldn't really agree with both of you more. And I think this class is exciting, especially in this population. And with that, we've reached the end of our discussion. It was just terrific. I want to thank you both so much for your time and valuable insights. You're both super seasoned. And before we adjourn, I'd also like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this session, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, as well as Amplity Health for the opportunity to post this podcast digitally and also on the website of their two journals. Thanks again, everyone, and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.